Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Lisa Lang. Lisa has experience as a legal specialist in the United States Army and as a legal non-commissioned officer. Lisa was previously as a senior litigation paralegal and associate at Woodward, Hobson and Fulton LLP. She then spent nine years serving as an assistant attorney general, assistant general counsel and general counsel for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Currently, Lisa is the general counsel at Kentucky State University. In addition to all of this, Lisa is passionate community builder and blog owner to Why This, Not That. So a very, very warm welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Rob. So happy to be here today. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing achievements and projects to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the show. So are you ready? On the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the reality hit series Suits in terms of its reality? So I have practiced this answer. I have never watched Suits before. And I thought about watching it before I came on your show and I thought, no, I'm going to be honest and authentic and tell you I've never watched it. Good for you. And that's the right answer if you've not seen it. So we give it a naught and we move swiftly on. So to begin with, Lisa, would you mind telling us a bit about your background and career journey? Sure. Uh, So when I first started um, my career, um, I was unsure of what I wanted to do. So the law is something that not that I immediately jumped into. Um, I had some thoughts in high school about being um, a teacher. Um, I enjoyed the law, but I also enjoyed education. And part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to be good at whatever it is that I did. And I struggled for a long time trying to figure out which direction to go in. And um, I initially picked um, the direction of education. And so I actually did go to college um, to be a teacher. I wanted to be a um, high school special education teacher. And um, I was hoping to, um, at the time I was uh, dating a um, uh, a coach of a uh, basketball team. And so what I had envisioned for my future um, would be to teach high school and then um, tutor uh, students who were um, in uh, organized sports. And um, I got right up uh, until I was supposed to go student teach and, uh, things I broke off with, with the guy that I was dating at the time. And I had this moment of why am I doing what I'm doing? Is education what I really want to do and what I'm really passionate about? Um, or is, uh, my passion really in law? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And so, um, it was at that moment that I decided that, um, just because, um, I felt like I was good at education, um, you had to have that passion, that drive to be really good at it. And I decided that was not the direction I wanted to go in. And so that's when I started moving into the direction of law. And um, I was um, a little bit concerned about my ability to be successful in law school. And um, I also knew that it would take a lot of time, money and effort. And so um, I thought I would um, become a paralegal first, because I guess in the States, we don't, paralegal is not part of the legal journey. And I, I don't know a whole lot about the legal journey for um, attorneys and solicitors and barristers in the UK and other countries, but I think paralegal is is part of a, a lot of times the journey in other countries, but it's not so much here. Um, but I decided to try 
without being a paralegal to see if um, to just to make sure that the law was really something I really wanted to do. And um, so what ended up happening is uh, I had an English degree and I was applying for positions to be a paralegal and I could not get a job. And I was taking uh, so I went to school to at night to take some uh, paralegal classes. And um, we had a, a non-commissioned officer come in from the military talking about the fact that they had a military occupational specialty called legal specialist. And they were looking for what they said was a higher caliber soldier. And they wanted people with four-year degrees. And um, uh, at that time, I was married. My husband was in the military. He was about ready to get out and he wanted to go to school. And um, he was frustrated that um, <laughs> I dropped my education major and I had a BA in English. And he was like, I don't know what you're going to do with that. And so I decided when he got out that I would go in as a, uh, a military legal specialist, a paralegal. And that that's the thing that really set my whole uh, career trajectory in motion. And I, I did spend about six years as a uh, legal specialist, and I really did enjoy it. And I had some thought about staying in the paralegal realm and the military. But what I learned, um, I didn't have children when I went into the military, and I had children while in the military. And I got deployed for seven, I'm sorry, 11 months after my second child was born. And I left him when he was uh, five months old for almost a year. And so it was at that time that I decided that, you know, I maybe I would be a paralegal, but I wasn't going to be a military paralegal. So, you know, it, it, it's a series of decisions. It's not just one day you decide this is what I'm going to do. It just kind of evolved over time. That's a really long answer. <laughs> no, but it's a great detailed answer. And you, you, you did so much. And uh, I love how you sort of made that that that, that transition. And you, you talk there, and that leads nicely on to my next question, really, because you were a legal specialist in the United States Army. You touched on, you know, what a, a legal specialist does. But we'd love to know a little bit more around that. And also just generally your time in the Army, how you found it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what you do as a legal military specialist in the Army, you go to basic training and then after basic training, you go to what they call AIT, Advanced Individual Training. And um, during that period, you learn um, every facet of the law that you might experience while you're in the military because you never know when you get assigned to a specific duty station which one of those particular areas they're going to need to have you serve in. So it's not just, um, so you talk about suits, there's other, the, the JAG show um, in the United States. It's not just, that's military criminal justice. That's not, I think there's a lot of people who think that um, when you're a, a military legal specialist, that that's all you do. That is only one of the many areas. So there's that area, but then there's also um, areas, uh, there's a legal assistance office, and the legal assistance office provides um, assistance and support um, in terms of um, wills, powers of attorneys, um, taxes. So anything anything like that, um, they provide support to soldiers with the um the Soldiers and Civil uh, Relief Act for when you're deployed. Um, so, so there's that. And then there's a claims division. And in the claims division, um, you um, process claims by soldiers that have been damaged, harmed by uh, negligence in the military. Um, let me see what else was there. There's just there's there's just several different areas and you go to AIT and you learn all these different areas. And I had worked I ended up working in every single one of those areas. And so, you know, I think that if you are someone who is unsure of what you want to do, what 
what you enjoy, what your skill set is. When you go into the military and you pick that as your military occupational specialty and you decide you don't want to stay in the military, it really gives you a broad overview of all of the different areas. And so I really did enjoy it a lot because um, it did help really refine um, for me what my skill set was and where I was finding myself most successful and what I enjoyed most. So it was a really good um, uh, introduction to the area of law in general. Yeah, and thank you for being so thorough with that as well and giving us some real sort of insight into what that involved. It sounds like a very sort of full-on, broad role that you had there. And you talked about being deployed because you were also uh, a legal non-commissioned officer deployed to, I believe, in Bosnia. And so what did your role involve there? So I was attached. Uh, the, when you're in the military, it's almost like you've got two different uh, chains of command when you are um, a legal military specialist. You are in the JAG Corps and you support the attorneys um, in the JAG Corps and that's kind of a separate chain of command, but then you become attached to other units that have other military occupational specialties. So when I went deployed to Bosnia, I was attached to a headquarters unit of a military police brigade. And um, what we specifically had to do was to support um, the uh, military police that were deploying to Bosnia. And so part of the things that I did in my role, and what's different and what's interesting about being deployed is there are other areas that you end up um, being involved with that you are not involved with when you are in your duty station. So when you are on a deployment such as that, um, there are... We do do some um, military justice um, when soldiers accidentally inadvertently discharge their weapons. Um, we had to do uh, military justice with that. Um, we had issues, um, uh, uh, civil affairs, and how to deal with civilians and rules of engagement, um, how to, when it was appropriate and acceptable to do certain things, um, the Geneva Convention. So those were things that we would help support our officers in, in training and assisting soldiers to know and understand so that they knew how to navigate um, in the area in which we were deployed. And we had to learn about the culture and the people um, that we were being surrounded with to make sure that we were um, abiding by their cultures and, and norms and um, we were appropriately and properly um, engaging and interfacing with them. And those rules are different than when you are back in your home duty station to some extent. And so we had to support in learning, uh, teaching people how to do it and then supporting um, and enforcement of those rules. Yeah, and again, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Some of the stories that you, you share there, I can imagine you've seen so many different things from, from your time. And I touched on in the introduction as well, and you were mentioning before, um, you know, you were a senior litigation paralegal, then associate at Woodward, Hobson and Fulton. So yeah. what skills did you learn from those experiences? Um, so the, the thing I think that was the most helpful for me, I was a litigation paralegal when I was, um, when I went to the law firm. And um, I learned a lot about um, organization, time management. Uh, what I enjoyed the most about being a litigation paralegal is my work was document intensive. And there are some people that don't enjoy and think documents 
uh, review is boring. But what I enjoyed about it as a legal, um, as a paralegal, was uh, the attorneys oftentimes had in their mind what they believed a case to be. They usually were the ones were in the client interview and the client would explain to them what, you know, the claims or defenses were. But what I found so fascinating is there's a difference between what your client tells you they think the case is about (laughs) and sometimes what the actual case is about. And so what I enjoyed doing was sorting, organizing, uh, indexing, summarizing documents and, um, what I would do as a paralegal is I would build a picture of what I believe the case to be based on the documents. And it was interesting because sometimes they did not always completely jive what the client said it was versus what I was seeing in the document. So I really enjoyed that aspect of being of a, a paralegal. Awesome. Yeah. And I can imagine, yeah, there was some probably uh, some gray areas, some areas where clients thought one thing and, you know, it was absolutely in terms of the way the law goes, probably, probably another. And so from there, you then spent nine years serving as an assistant attorney, general assistant counsel, general counsel for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So what are the differences between each of those roles? And can you explain what responsibilities you had whilst within them? Right. You know, so what was interesting is so what just to, to kind of set the stage for how I ended up there. Um, so after I was the litigation paralegal, I went to law school at night and I ended up working for Woodward Hobson Fulton as an associate. Um, and so I did um, insurance defense. Um, and so when I moved to the Commonwealth of Kentucky um, in the attorney general's office, I did the same basic thing. Um, I defended clients against claims. The way um, it works in the United States and Kentucky specifically is um, if you work for a state agency and um, the state agency or the the employee of the state agency is sued, they have to go to the attorney general's office and they get the attorney general's office to represent them in that case. And so um, my job was to defend agencies and um, the people who were sued in them. And so um, I did that probably for about two or three years. And one of my client agents was the Kentucky Department of Education. And um, they had a lot of litigation. It was varied. Um, And um, when those cases was come into the attorney general's office, they would randomly distribute the cases. But after time, because I had learned so much about education and I had background in education. So it kind of came back to I had started there. And so I had some understanding how education worked. And so they started assigning me these cases in part because the Department of Education asked for me to represent them in those cases. So after a few years, it, when you looked at my my client list, I had a very small client list, but I had a lot of cases because they were all with the Kentucky Department of Education. And so um, I had gotten a call one day from the Department of Education, and they told me that they were um, no longer they had they had done a, a request for an exception to policy, and they were no longer going to use the Attorney General's office. And I was said, "Oh, I am so sad that you know we we can no longer work together." And they said, "No, the reason we're calling you is because." We 
we want you to apply for the position. We are going to bring it in-house. We no longer want to ask the attorney general's office and then have to, we may get you, but we may not get you. So we would rather bring it in-house and we would like you to apply for the position. So I that's how I started to segue from being um, a defending um, in litigation. And then I moved in-house. And when I went in-house at the Kentucky Department of Education, my role was um, twofold. So yes, I continued to defend them in cases, but I started also, I was now an assistant general counsel. And so my role expanded. And what was so nice about the role from going from outside counsel to inside counsel, and especially working for an entity you'd already been defending, is you have an understanding of in the context of litigation, here are the things, the facts that did not inure to your benefits. And so when you go in-house and you start to see problems before they get to the litigation level, what I love to have the ability to do is to get in front of the problem. And because I had represented them in other cases, it was easy for me to say, okay, remember when you did it that time? We are going down the exact same path before. Let's rethink our how we're approaching this problem so that we can have a different result later. Ah, okay. That's an interesting story. And I wasn't aware of how that had happened previously, but that does all make perfect sense now. Time for a quick break from the show. Are you a legal aid practitioner in England and Wales, specializing in civil or criminal legal aid matters? If you are, this message is for you. As a legal aid solicitor, you don't have time to waste on legal aid case management software that doesn't work to your needs. That's why Clio has developed a quicker, more accurate and affordable solution for legal aid solicitors in England and Wales. It could save you hours in your month, particularly when it comes to end of month invoicing and claims to the legal aid agency. To see how it all works, visit clio.com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. That's Clio, C-L-I-O dot com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. Now back to the show. You're now the general counsel at Kentucky State University. So would you mind telling us a bit more what the general counsel gets up to day to day? Yeah, so so to, to tell you how I got there, um, it's um, because... Uh, so with the Kentucky Department of Education, it was, you know, from kindergarten up to 12th grade. And while I was at the Kentucky Department of Education, I started um, to, I ended up going um, to become the general counsel of the Education Professional Standards Board, and they were responsible for approving programs in universities to teach teachers. And so I, that that's how I got to know um, people in the uh in the higher education arena. And um, I had built a reputation. And so, again, I was asked to apply um, when a position came open at the um, Kentucky Kentucky State University. And I applied for that position. And I also think what's interesting about education in Kentucky and in the United States in general, I don't know what it's like in the UK and other countries, but people are beginning to understand that education, we have to stop looking at it in in these phases. It's, It's one big process. And so it's not K-12 and then higher ed. It's, 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 it's all of it together. Not everybody's going to go to college, but some people may go to a two-year college. They may go to a vocational training facility or something other than higher ed. But 
those pieces are all important. So when you ask what I do day to day, some of the things I do today, day to day is to advise about some of these programs we're developing, whether it's called dual enrollment and dual credit, where you are taking classes um, at the university that will count for your high school credit, but it'll also count for your university credit. And I just mentioned that just because, you know, higher education is a business just like any other business. And so what's so important about transitioning into an in-house role is understanding the business. So the time that I spent in the Kentucky Department of Education with K-12 was me learning a facet of their business. And so that knowledge and understanding helps me in the role that I have now. Um, And just like being in the military um, or being in a general practice, um, I am essentially a strategic business partner who happens to be a lawyer. And that means that I have to know and understand every part of the university's structure. And what I'm called to do on any given day is going to be different. I do everything from um, human resources and providing guidance and support in terms of personnel issues. Um, I do purchasing and procurement. I review contracts. I draft contracts. Um, I have Uh, conversations with people trying to manage contracts and how to interpret those contracts. Um, What else? I mean, it's just the the gambit is just huge. And um, it's very, very interesting because I don't know what any given day is going to look like. Um, And and, um, it's not boring because I I have all these different areas, but it's just like any other business. And we have um, all of those different areas, just like any other business. So it's fair to say you do a lot. <laughs> you know, when yeah. you break, break that yeah. out, I think there's a lot that you, you do there. And the breadth of the role is is super interesting. And, you know, I, one thing I wanted to ask, you, you've previously stated, if I'd learned anything throughout my career, I've learned that no one has all the answers. So do you mind telling us a little bit more and explaining a bit more behind that? Yeah. And, you know, I think that the older I get, the more I realize what I that, that how much I don't know. And I think that, you know, it, when I believe in that philosophy in so many different ways. Um, you don't know what you want to do until you get out there and figure out what you don't want to do. Um, and so so that's how that applies in that career um, perspective. But when you go and do your job, um, every situation that you encounter your ability to deal with the situation is going to be better because you've had education and you've had experience. But you also have to remember that every set of facts is different. And so you you have to be careful about thinking that you know everything because you don't. Every situation is different. And you also have to tap into the expertise and perspective of other people because they have a different view of the world and of facts. And so I think it's important to remember that so that you know you are not making decisions by yourself. You cannot know everything. It doesn't matter how much education or experience you have. And there's other people that are going to have a perspective that is going to be value and and will help come to make a, a decision that will be better. I love that because it's so true. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And having that curiosity and always open to learning, um, I think is such a great mindset 
to have. So thank you for sharing that and providing some context around it. And, and most recently, Lisa, you also joined the community of seven, I believe. So that's a selective invite-only membership initiative for purpose-driven leaders. So what is the group about and how does it feel to be part of such an exclusive community? Yeah. So Lan Fan is the one that is uh, who, who developed that community. And what's funny is I connected with her about the same time I connected with you. And her story is so motivational. And um, so she had been working for a company and then had gotten let go at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, she was working to figure out what it is that she wanted to do. And she developed this um, company called Community of Seven. And um, I started following her and her posts, and they were so inspirational. Um, and um, they were things that really helped me as an individual and as a leader to be motivated and to keep going despite a lot of the the issues that were coming up during the pandemic and um, being part of that community. Um, it's it's about servant leadership and it's about trying to, to move forward, but moving forward in a way that helps and supports others while you're at it because you can do both at the same time. So true, so true. And not only are you part of these amazing groups, you've had this wonderful background, all this legal expertise, you're also a best-selling author. So you also co-authored Hashtag Networked, so how 20 women lawyers overcame the confines of COVID-19 social distancing to create connections, cultivate community and build business in the midst of the global pandemic. So can you tell us more about Networked and your part in the book and how it all came about? Yeah, you know, what was, um, so talking about the pandemic, um, my LinkedIn activity started um, probably September of um, 2019. And um, I did not, I was not the prolific poster I am now. I was, I was what I would call a lurker. Mm -hmm. Um, I would read things, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't post a lot. But my activity had started to increase more in 2019. But as we got closer and closer to the pandemic, um, it I was finding myself um, struggling um, a lot more. Um, you know, when you work for a, a university, part of what I like about it is um, the sense of community, the camaraderie. And you'll sit in your office in the spring, for instance, and um, you can hear the band practicing outside. It's just there's there's so much inspiration and motivation you can get on a college campus when you've got kids there all doing the activities that they do and that the, you, you can derive a lot of inspiration and motivation by being surrounded by that. But once the pandemic hit, um, you know, we were going to remote, we went to remote learning and um, a lot of our employees started working remotely from home. Um, a very small group of us had to be on campus in order to work. And, um, you know, when you're coming in early in the morning and it's dark, campus is completely dead. It was almost like Armageddon. You were walking in and nobody was on campus. It was completely dark. I was going up to the fifth floor. I was the only person on the fifth floor so quiet. Um, and so I started looking to LinkedIn because I um, I have a great team. I have a great legal team and they weren't on campus anymore. I couldn't bounce ideas off of them. It just, it was, uh, the, the social aspect was completely gone. And so I started looking to LinkedIn 
for something a lot more than I had ever done before. And I started connecting with people and started communicating with people in a way that was very supportive and nurturing. And so, uh, and, and so I, I started, I got into um, connecting with a group of women who were all struggling with the same things during the pandemic. And especially at the beginning, um, it was so dark and we just um, were leaning on each other to try and get through all of our respective troubles. And um, so we we would post and we would comment on each other's thing, but we also had a separate uh private messaging where if we were struggling, I mean, we were, we were messaging and texting 24 hours a day because it was really hard. Um, and, um, some, one of the people in the book or, um, in the group, Sherry Belize, um, came up with the idea that we should write a book about our experiences because we were all supporting each other and trying to get through the pandemic and we were helping each other in different ways. And some of us had, you know, we're going to, um, do certain things in person we could never do and we couldn't do in person and so we decided to do it virtually and then we all jumped in and helped to try and promote whatever a person in our group was doing virtually and so we decided that we would write we would write our stories and um and then we would put them together in a book and and that's what we did and that's how it came about and a fantastic book it is, it has to be said. And, you know, each lawyer's story touches on human will, virtual and societal tension. You touched on it there, but why is it important for you personally to make a contribution to Networked? I wanted people to, especially lawyers, I really felt like lawyers, and I think you and I had this conversation at the beginning of our relationship because you and I were both passionate about how you could use and leverage LinkedIn to network, to build connections and build relationships. And you felt like lawyers um, just were not embracing it. Why are they not embracing this? You know, and so that's part of what I wanted to do with LinkedIn and my story in Link, or I'm sorry, in Network. And um, that's my story in Network. Um, I am not somebody... It's funny to me sitting here doing what I'm doing with you right now. I cannot, I would not have envisioned me doing this like three years ago because I considered myself an introvert and I considered myself somebody who is a terrible networker. I would go into events and then go find the back door to slip (laughs) out because I was completely uncomfortable in the situation. Um, And so, um, while that is true, when I started to put myself out there in the way that I put myself out there, I was shocked, amazed, and surprised at um, the fact that I could do it and um, the benefit that it has given me. And I just want lawyers to start changing their mindset about networking, LinkedIn, and, and, and building foundations of relationships. It's so important. And you know you're talking my language, Lisa, because absolutely, and anyone who follows the show or knows that LinkedIn is where I strongly believe you can foster some of the greatest professional relationships because, you know, contacts are good that the relationships pay. And I think the ability to foster those on platforms like LinkedIn is just wonderful. And But it doesn't stop there, Lisa, you know, is there's more. So you're also the blog owner of Why This Not That. Love the name. So what was your inspiration behind your blog and what type of resources do you have shared there? Yeah. So, um, and I'm trying to remember exactly if I'm, I can't remember what, 
one particular thing that got me um, in that mindset. And, and you know, and I think it, it really does have a lot to do with this whole idea of how lawyers were approaching LinkedIn and networking. And there were so many things that it was like conventional wisdom. You were hearing people saying, well, you do this. And I and, and that's I think that got me on that kick. It was like, no, why are you doing this? Don't do this. You need to do that. Um, and I think, you know, part of what I was trying to do also is trying to provide that perspective, then that insight to new lawyers, because it seemed like so many of us were brought up in, you know, a profession that encouraged certain perspectives. And uh, I was passionate about trying to get people to reimagine and re-envision how they were approaching what they did. Love that. I just absolutely love where you, it seems to me every life experience, you sort of channel that into a new initiative or giving value or trying to do something to, to help people. And, and that leads nicely onto what I was next going to talk about, because we have talked about LinkedIn and you are a LinkedIn creator and community builder. <clears throat> One of the best, it has to be said, but what does community mean to you specifically? And how have you been able to utilize LinkedIn to build your network? Because you mentioned you started relatively recently in sort of September of 2019. Yeah, so um, community, what it means to me is it is about providing support without expecting anything in return. And um, I just, what if they they say um, all tides lift all boats? I mean, so um, I've not been able to accomplish what I've been able to accomplish without the help and support of those people that with whom I've connected. Um, and um, I've also found great passion and joy in, in watching and seeing other people be able to rise to their full potential. And uh, Flo Nichols is one of them. I love Flo. Um, yeah, John Lindsay, um, I, I've, I've done some things and I've talked with them offline. You know, they start to, to, to show um, a penchant or a love or a passion for something, but they're nervous about taking the next step. And um, so I've had offline conversations where I've been like, oh my God, you are wonderful in this area. You, you need to do this. And so community for me is just about helping and supporting other people in their goals. And I'm not expecting anything in return. And I feel like that is the type of community that I have, that I've tried to build. And I feel like I have built and um, I reap indirect uh, benefits from it every day. Absolutely. And you most definitely have. And talking of sort of LinkedIn and posting, you know, in a recent LinkedIn post, you discuss one size does not fit all, especially when it comes to learning. So you share not everyone learns in the same way. And there is an ongoing debate. Who has the responsibility for training new lawyers? Who do you think is responsible for training new lawyers? It is a joint responsibility. And I think, um, and you know, and, and that comes from my, my education background because I do come from being a trained teacher in special education. And part of what we learned in that was that um, everybody is unique and different um, in terms of their education. I learned a great deal from the military. I know that there are a lot of people that don't leave service having learned things. But what I would say is, it's a joint responsibility in terms of creating an environment that's conducive to learning um, and instructors need to figure out um, and to help the student figure out 
what is the best modality for them to learn in. So, I mean, I don't think the uh, the onus is on either the, the, the student or the teacher. The onus is on the teacher and the student to come together and work together to figure out how to best um, ensure that that student gets the knowledge and understanding that they need in order to be successful in life. Love it. And that just plays to what I always say in this world for success in the modern world. You need community, you need collaboration, you need confidence. I think you've just hit the middle C there of collaboration, the two coming together, collaborating to make it a roaring success. So finally, before we we wrap up, Lisa, what advice would you give to aspiring lawyers or recent graduates looking to pave their future in the legal profession? I think connection and building relationships is the key to everything. Um, and you just need to get out there and you not need to talk with other people. Um, and, and don't be afraid to blaze your own path. Oh, I love that. Yeah, don't be afraid. I love it. Love it. Lisa, I've thoroughly enjoyed today. And if our listeners would like to learn more about your experiences, part of general councils or networks, or what would be the best way for them to contact you? And also feel free to shout out any of your social media handles or website links, and we'll also share them with this episode for you too. Yeah, so um, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place to get me. Um, uh, lawyer Lisa Lang, hashtag Lawyer Lisa Lang. Um, and I also write um, articles on Above the Law, and I have a website um, that's uh, lawyerlisalang.com. So definitely check all that out, folks. But thank you so, so much, Lisa, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been waiting a long time for this one. So I'd like to wish you lots of continued success with all of your future pursuits and career. But for now, from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, over and out. This week's review comes from Sarah. Powerful, five stars. Amazing to hear a podcast that shines a light on how varied the legal industry is. Hearing from a number of people with unique journeys consistently instills me confidence that my route is also taking me down the path of success. Incredible. Sarah, thank you so, so much for your kind words from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast. We appreciate you.